host David Rayburn and today I am back with Dr. Kyle Fulton here at Children's New Orleans. Uh, going to be talking about some craniofacial uh, topics today which are definitely near and dear to Dr. Fulton's heart. If you remember he did a fellowship in craniofacial medicine so we're happy to have him back and we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, might as well just start with some cleft palate topic if cleft palate topics if that works for you Dr. Fulton. Perfect. Um, so it's kind of the bread and butter of what I do other than head shape, um, which we talked about last time. But cleft lip and palate is kind of the bread and butter of what I do. It's what, it's the most common thing and the most easily explained thing of what I do. However, I think similar to head shape, when in residency we learned very little about it. Um, because most of these kids do very well and they don't need to be admitted to the hospital. They don't need a whole lot of complex care follow-up. Um, so in general I don't feel like I learned much of anything in residency about it other than send them to someone else, send them to the plastic surgeon. So um, the first thing um, on the board specs is plan appropriate management of a cleft palate in patients of various ages. So. I'm going to start that by basically explaining what we use our palate for. Um, we use it for three different things. For feeding, speaking, and hearing. So the first thing that we use our palate for is feeding. And our palate is required to form suction. When a baby is born, ideally they go to the breast in that first hour. If a baby has a cleft palate, they can't form suction. Therefore, they cannot suckle on the breast and get milk. Is it harmful to the baby to go to the breast if they have a cleft palate? Absolutely not, and they should for that bonding and that stimulation for, for mother's milk. Um, but know that that baby's not going to be an effective feeder with traditional breastfeeding or traditional bottle feeding. Without the palate being able to go to the back of the pharynx, they're not able to form the suction. It's like trying to drink out of a straw with a hole in it. No matter how hard they try, you're not going to be good at it. So traditionally, we want to get these kids a bottle with a valve in it. Okay. So what that valve does is makes it so that the baby does not have to form suction. There's different models of bottles, and the nursery that you work at or the team that you work with in your area may have different preferences, but here in the U.S. we pretty much have all switched to using the Dr. Brown specialty cleft feeders, which looks like a completely normal Dr. Brown bottle, but it's got a special blue valve in the nipple that allows milk to come into the nipple anytime that the nipple is touched. So anytime the baby is suckling and moving their lips and their jaw and their tongue, a little bit of milk comes out, um, and the valve prevents further air from getting in the nipple so that the baby doesn't swallow as much air. I think my number one tip when it comes to assessing feeding in a baby with a cleft palate is get them to someone who knows what they're doing. Assessing feeding is the most important thing when it comes to newborns and cleft palates or um, pretty much any kind of craniofacial difference um, in those first couple weeks. Um, a craniofacial team um, at your local children's hospital is going to have resources available. They're going to have feeding therapists. They're going to have specialists that know about feeding infants. And most of that can even be done over the phone to coach the parents into getting the correct supplies 
and um, doing every, you know, optimizing things before they can get in to see someone. Um, so my number one pearl, and I've seen it dozens of times, pick up a phone and call someone. Um, don't leave it to the family to call. Pick up a phone and call the local craniofacial center and ask them what do you do. Because um, if you leave it to the family, you're going to end up with a baby that's not feeding, has bilirubin problems, and has poor weight gain, is going to be admitted to the hospital for, for failure to thrive. So pick up a phone and talk to somebody. Um, second thing that we use our palate for is speech. So when we're talking, and especially making those hard consonant sounds of B, P, D, those consonants that you have to build up pressure in your mouth, they sound kind of harsh. If the palate does not come together correctly, that means it can't go to the back of the pharyngeal wall and close off your mouth from your nose. So some of that air escapes through the nose and makes you sound like you've got a cold. It may sound muffled. It may sound congested. No amount of speech therapy can overcome that difference. You actually need a cleft palate surgery. You need to close the palate to make it competent so that the palate can close and form more perfect speech. When the air is escaping through the nose, that's called velopharyngeal insufficiency. So it's palate dysfunction, and it is typically in craniofacial terms is associated with speech. I've also seen it applied to feeding. So if you've got a little guy that is feeding, and every time they feed, a lot of milk comes out their nose. They have nasal regurgitation while they're feeding. That sometimes is called velopharyngeal insufficiency. That is not normal, and that may be a sign of an occult cleft palate. That is definitely a sign of palatal dysfunction. If that does not get better after a day or so, that kid warrants a workup with a craniofacial team. And commonly, um, the last three kids I've seen with this all had 22Q deletion. So it's kind of the most common thing that I would think of when you've got a little guy with palatal dysfunction and a cleft palate. 22Q is kind of one of those top things. Boards also love to test on 22Q um, because it's got so many things associated with it. So it's definitely associated with cleft palate, submucous cleft palate. Um, and then the last thing that we use our palate for is hearing. And this one always throws people for a loop. It has to do with eustachian tube function. So when we're being formed, when your palate is being formed as a fetus at 7 to 10 weeks of gestation, the muscles of the palate come together and form an arch to form the soft part of your palate in the back. Um, if they don't come together correctly, it doesn't form that arch. That when you yawn, when you pop your ears, what you're doing is you're stretching, you're lowering your palate and stretching the eustachian tube, allowing the pressure on the inside of the ear to equalize and allow that fluid to drain so if you don't have a competent palate, you don't effectively stretch that eustachian tube. So those kids end up with negative pressure in their ears, which draws fluid up to that eustachian tube, 
which leads them at higher risk of having regular otitis medias um, due to that fluid there. They do have chronic serous otitis media as well. So it leads them to being at higher risk for ear infections and hearing loss, conductive hearing loss due to kind of fluid buildup. In any little guy with a cleft palate, you want to assure that they've passed their hearing screens and that someone, hopefully a craniofacial team, because research has shown that kids that are taken care of with a multi-specialty team do better in the long run, um, have better developmental outcomes. But you want to make sure that the team is following that. If they're going to an accredited craniofacial team, they are. Once the palate is repaired, do those eustachian tube concerns go away? Ideally. Those kids are still at higher risk than the average patient of having serious otitis media and sensorineural hearing loss because if there was something embryologically that wasn't perfect, sometimes all of those branchial clefts and branchial arches are kind of associated and, and does leave them at a little higher risk of having sensorineural hearing loss as well. But ideally, once the palate is repaired, the child's able to kind of have better control of their, of their eustachian tube. Um, they're always at high risk of having more recurrent ear infections. For our listeners, you may hear a train in the background, and if you're not familiar where Children's Hospital of New Orleans is, it is right on one of the big ports on the Mississippi River. So. The, you're welcome for the train noise in the background. <laughs> and sometimes you'll hear a foghorn from the local barges or our lovely helicopter um, transporting critically sick kids in my office. So, um, <laughs> so it's all the sounds. Um, it's a kid's dream to, to be able to sit and see the port. Trains, um, planes, and automobiles. Yeah, while they're, while they're recovering from things. All right, back, back to the topic at hand. Sorry for that little uh, jaunt. That actually explains so much to me, and I feel like I've done a lot of these podcasts now, um, and this one has been the uh, most eye-opening to me as far as explaining a lot of things that I probably didn't understand previously, so thank you for that, Dr. Fulton. You talked about 22Q, but as far other conditions that are associated with cleft palate that we should know for the boards? Definitely. So another kind of common thing that the boards like to test you on is whether it's a syndrome, whether it's an association, or a sequence. Um, and there's pretty much only two sequences that I can think of, Potter sequence and Roban sequence, or Pierre Roban sequence. And Pierre Roban sequence is basically thought to be embryologically due to mandibular hypoplasia at that eight, seven to nine, ten week gestational age when the palate is forming, the jaw being a little bit smaller the mandible being a little smaller, causes the tongue to sit up a little superiorly and prevent the palatal shells from forming. So then you have your sequence of a small jaw, a relatively normal sized tongue, causing a cleft palate, and then you can end up with glossoptosis or tongue, glossoptosis, falling. So you can end up with the tongue falling back and causing upper airway obstruction. That's kind of your sequence there. And it's a sequence because it's one event, one anatomic event causes a sequence of concerns. It is associated with a couple different syndromes. The most common, about 30% of kids with Roban have Stickler syndrome. Stickler is a 
defect in collagen. Um, it's the Col1A gene, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, the Col, or sorry, the Col1 and Col2 genes. Um, I'm telling you this because this is actually a board spec. <laughs> Going into a little detail, um, but it's one of the few board specs that there are with craniofacial beads. Um, so it's a defect in collagen. So these kids have a small jaw. They can end up with vitriol differences within the eye, which causes them to have myopia or severe nearsightedness at a very young age. And it, the vitriol differences can be seen by ophthalmology. It's a difference in like the lattice work, basically, of the jelly inside the eye. Due to this as well, they're at increased risk of retinal detachment. It is the most common genetic cause of retinal detachment in kids. And it's one of the most common causes of kind of blindness because the retinal detachment happens and a kid doesn't necessarily know that they're only seeing out of one eye now. And so it's, you know, six months to a year later that we figure out that they aren't seeing out of that eye. Um, so when you've got a little guy with Roban, want to make sure that they're getting seen by ophthalmology um, to check out their eyes. Um, but as well with Stickler, they can end up with arthritis at an earlier age. That typically doesn't happen until they're outside of the pediatric realm, but that does happen in the 20s. They may start having arthritis changes. Along with the Roban sequence, feeding is always our big concern. But in these little guys, when you've got a small jaw, when you've got any sort of mandibular difference, you want to make sure that their airway is safe. So the smaller jaw, they may have a normal sized tongue, but they can have that glossoptosis and their tongue may be falling backwards and causing intermittent upper airway obstruction, um, which is causing sleep apnea, which you know can cause lots and lots of issues. Poor growth is kind of one of the first things that we'll see. But in the kids with mandibular differences, whether that's Roban sequence or that's craniofacial microsomia, so you've got one side of the jaw that's bigger or smaller, Back with Wiedemann, where you end up may have a bigger jaw or a bigger tongue than expected within the mouth. All of those differences, what concerns me when I see those kids is airway. It concerns me as well in Absolutely. the emergency department when Absolutely. I read that in a patient's history too. <laughs> yeah, and like, so number one, I say, you know, we're always worried about feeds, but that's basically because the nurses and, and, and other people don't call me until they're already sick. Um, if they're not safe, if they're not breathing well, I typically don't get that call immediately. That's the ER docs or the ENT or the NICU doc in the NICU. But kind of making sure that those babies are breathing well. And a quick, safe way to prevent glossoptosis and help airway obstruction in these kids when you are at a rural hospital out in the middle of nowhere or you're at a large institution, but it's the middle of the night. Prone the baby. Put the baby on their belly. Put them on a monitor. Gravity helps pull that tongue forward and can help keep the tongue out of the airway. Is this a permanent solution? No. But it is a good, emergent, quick thing to help the baby stop desatting, to stop having intermittent upper airway obstruction until you can work with the ENT, until you can work with your craniofacial team to figure out what are the next steps in keeping this baby safe. Yeah, I mean, at least from a board's standpoint, there isn't a large section for this area of medicine. 
but I know that you have a vast knowledge. So if there's anything else uh, that you want our listeners to think about, at least from just the, the small portion of craniofacial stuff we've talked about, um, please feel free. Um, another thing that I see, another thing I see in kids with craniofacial differences is interruption of the suck, swallow, breathe mechanism, whether that's due to their cleft palate, whether that's due to a large tongue, different mandible size, small nose, narrow nasal passageways. Typically, if you've got a little guy whose airway is not patent all the time or is stenosed, they're going to have issues with feeding because if the baby cannot breathe well, the baby cannot feed well. So, Anytime I have a little guy that's not feeding well with a craniofacial difference, I start at the beginning and I look at ABCs. I look at my airway. I check the breathing. I ask, is the baby snoring? Do you notice pauses in the baby's breathing? Do they have gasping like an old man snores? Um, but if a baby is having issues with the suck, swallow, breathe mechanism for some reason, that's enough concern for me to get them to a specialist of some sort, whether that's ENT that you can get into quickly or if that's if you're next to a large children's hospital, getting them into the craniofacial team to kind of do an assessment of their airway and breathing. And I think the biggest pearl I have when it comes to kids with craniofacial differences is call. Call somebody. Don't try and do that one on your own. It's something that we've, I feel like now that we have EMR, we've lost the art of calling people. And it's a huge benefit to patients to pick up a phone and call a specialist to talk about something. I never, I'm never worried when a pediatrician calls me that they're wasting my time. If they're picking up the phone and actually worried enough to call me, to me that's enough of a reason for me to drop what I'm doing and make sure that that baby is safe. Not always the right answer on the boards as Correct. far as consulting someone else, <laughs> but in real life definitely the right thing for the patient. Yeah. Definitely. On the boards, it's typically not your right answer. Um, I would always go with a good history and physical. But, uh, but yeah, in real life, picking up the phone and calling somebody is, is always a good option. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Dr. Fulton. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Absolutely.